Good morning again. Peace be with you. So when was the last time you had an awkward moment? I know some of you have had a lot of awkward moments in your life. You don't all know that they're awkward moments, but a lot of you have had a number of one. I was uh, talking with a good friend who uh, works for uh, an international company that is based in India, multi-million dollar company, and uh, many of them that are in the, the division here in the United States had never met the owner. And uh, the owner had wanted to spend a couple of minutes, uh, actually they had like carved out an hour in some of their meetings that they had all gathered, about an hour to hear the owner speak. Um, maybe some inspiration, some uh, direction, some vision for the company, uh, kind of leaders, about 30 people that were gathered there, and, uh, and many of them never had met the owner before. So he had flown in, he comes in, 30 people are gathered, they give him the mic. He just freezes up. My friend said there was like an awkward moment here. This leader of the multi-million dollar company and he freezes. My friend said perhaps it was not the most inspirational moment for him in his job. And so the CEO goes, well, let's ask some questions. So they asked some questions and, and they, they covered it well and, and, and went from there. But it was an awkward moment. You know, I think there were some awkward moments in Jesus' life and ministry. And yet there's something that tells me that Jesus rather enjoyed awkward moments. Because it seems as I read them that he's never in a hurry to resolve them, right? In fact, oftentimes he wants to use them to, to teach, to challenge to get us to think, to ask questions. This morning, we're going to look at an awkward moment. I think it's an awkward moment. We'll see if you think it's an awkward moment. Actually, it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 39. If you've brought your Bibles, wonderful. Would you turn to the chapter 7? There are some Bibles located in front of you. And as you turn there, I want you to be paying attention to the questions that Jesus asks in the midst of this moment, that he's going to take this moment, this very interesting moment, and not necessarily, of course, resolve it the way the people think it should be resolved. And what I think that he wants to do this morning is cause us to look at how we see. Look at our vision. Of course, not our physical vision, but our, our spiritual and relational vision. I think what he wants to do is challenge, first and foremost, how we see ourselves, how we understand ourselves, how we see God, specifically Jesus, but some the Father. And then also I think he wants us to challenge how we see one another, others. 
So a lot for us this morning. It's the story of Jesus is sitting at the table of a Pharisee and then an uninvited guest bursts in Luke chapter 7 starting at verse 36 says when one of the Pharisees religious leader in Jesus day invited Jesus to have dinner with him he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table a woman of course not invited a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So an alabaster jar would typically be very wide base and then a long neck containing oftentimes very expensive perfume of some sorts. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So imagine this, probably they're at a, a low table and they're sitting and Jesus is at the table, but his feet are out. She bursts in, she finds Jesus and his feet are, are facing out and she begins to cry, cry so much that the tears are flowing so much they can wet her feet. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She must have let down her hair. Another cultural faux pas. Um, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. Takes the alabaster jar, pours the perfume. Imagine it falling mingling with her tears on Jesus' feet and that not only is she quite, uh, weeping audibly, visibly, but now this perfume fills the room. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, bends down and kisses Jesus' feet, pouring perfume on them. When the Pharisee, he's the host, his name is Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, the manner of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now let's pause right there for just a moment. And there's a number of reasons why I think this would have been an awkward moment. One is that oftentimes a, a, an emotional display, right, even today, in, in contexts that aren't quite appropriate, you know, to a train station if there's something happening or, or wherever that is, when someone is giving this tremendous emotional response, it makes people uncomfortable sometimes, right? And, and they're sitting there at the table probably chit-chatting back and forth. Oh, isn't the weather nice today? Uh, could you pass the mashed potatoes, what, right? But if there's a woman that's weeping and she's burst in and she's there, Jesus, I don't think you asked Jesus to pass the mashed potatoes at that moment, right? You're, you're wondering, what is this right? 
What's, what's happening? What, what do we do? Am I even comfortable continuing to eat while this woman is weeping and the tears are splashing upon Jesus' feet? I think that there are also an awkward moment, and I'd put it this way, the, the level of intimacy that's there between the woman and Jesus. This woman, it's not specifically stated that she's a, a prostitute, but you could argue that it's implied. We don't really know uh, the, the manner of woman that Simon is referring to, but probably she was a prostitute. Probably the, the perfume, the alabaster jar that she had, probably that was a tool of her trade that she used to scent the room in which she did her practice, her prostitution. And, and, you've got, and then you've got this woman probably reveals her identity by her dress and her makeup, and then her hair is down, which is again another cultural faux pas. So you have this shady character, this woman, this prostitute, kissing Jesus' feet. Do you think that would have added to a level of discomfort? And I would say, finally, I think this is an awkward moment because in the sense of righteousness, cultural righteousness, this was all wrong. You see, Simon was upset because he knows, everybody at the table knows who this woman is and her character. And also the sense of righteousness when you are a Pharisee or a religious leader or a prophet, you work very hard at maintaining your righteousness, your right living, right standing before God. And you want to make sure that you don't come into contact with anything or people or practice that is unrighteous because then their unrighteousness affects you, their sin, their brokenness rubs off on you and here's this woman touching, crying, caressing. This would be prophet. No wonder Simon says, I guess he's not a prophet. I mean, he doesn't even pick up on the social cues that are happening. Everybody else knows. We don't know how long this took place, but even five minutes, even 10 minutes, there must have been this just discomfort with this woman weeping and crying and especially the host, but everybody else, Jesus, would you do something? Would you, would you take care of this? She's interrupting our dinner. Would you move her along and deal with her later? Finally, Jesus does something. Let's read what he does. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Two people owned money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. 
that one denarii would be considered one day's wage. So 500, significant amount of money, probably about over a year and a half of work. So a significant amount of debt that this one person owes the money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. 50, still a significant amount of money, almost two months of work there. So they both, both people owe the money lender um, a certain amount of debt. Verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. First question Jesus asks, now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now, if Jesus would have stopped there, Simon would have been in a good place, right? Right? He doesn't stop there. He brings some application. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, he asks his second question, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you, Simon, did not give me any water for my feet. That was a normal custom, just a normal act of hospitality that people would have their feet washed by a servant in the home. But apparently that didn't happen when Jesus came. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, another sign of hospitality and welcome and blessing, shalom. Apparently that didn't happen either for Simon and Jesus. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet you did not put oil on my head, another form of hospitality. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, not because of her acts of devotion to Jesus, but because of her faith, very clearly he's going to say. And from her faith, from her love of God and his Messiah, her acts of de devotion flow from her faith. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Is he more than a prophet? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So fascinating, of course, that Jesus does not deal with the awkwardness that the woman had created, but he deals with who? The heart of Simon. And the irony of this passage is that Simon says, mm, I guess he's not a prophet. And what does Jesus do? He reads his mail. He prophetically knows what's going on in Simon's heart. 
and mind. And through a story, through a parable, and through question, I believe he exposes Simon's vision. He exposes how Simon sees himself, sees Jesus, and sees the woman or doesn't see the woman. First, Jesus exposes how Simon sees the woman. That second question was really the harder of the two, right? He got the first one, but no free cup of coffee for Simon because that was an easy one. Most of us would have gotten that one. Second one, it's a different kind of question. He asked, do you see this woman? And I think the answer is no. Simon did not see the woman. He didn't really see her. What did he see? He just saw her sin. He just saw her brokenness. He saw her as someone to be avoided. He saw her as someone who he needed to make sure he didn't come into contact, for sure not invite into his home because that would compromise his righteousness and his right standing before God. He did not see her as someone who's been created in the image of God. That though fallen, he did not see the heart of the Father for her. That he's not, that she's not someone that God despises and pushes away because of her sin, but that the Father sees and is seeking to draw her, to forgive her and restore her. The love of the Father to remake that image of the Father that is still in her though broken and shaded. He didn't really see her. He doesn't see any of that. I think, friends, so often, we see others like Simon saw this woman, right? I think there's something in human, in our human nature where we see others and we see their brokenness. And we don't want to get close. We don't see them as people made in the image of God, whom God loves, whom God wants to forgive, whom God wants to restore, whom God wants to bring out that image, that life. Before we judge Simon too harshly, can we look in our own hearts And wrestle with, are we most like Simon in this story than anyone else? Should I let that awkward moment just settle for a little while? Second, Jesus exposes how Simon sees himself. How Simon understands who he was. How do you think Simon sees himself? I think he sees himself quite often like we view ourselves, that in terms of righteousness, we're we're okay. We're doing a decent job. Most of us, you could say, we own homes and cars. 
we're, we're middle class. Most of us, we would have been able to host a party, right, with maybe a few folks in our living room and provide dinner for Jesus. Most of us would be offended if a prostitute burst in and we'd be wondering how Jesus would deal with that, especially if we compare our own righteousness and relationship with God to shady people. If we compare ourselves to others, shady folks, where do we end up? I'd say we end up pretty good, not half bad. Now, most of us, if you're here this morning, you at least have a, a level of curiosity about Jesus and about faith. And I would say also many of us are feeling okay about where we stand. Our need for Jesus, well, certainly not as high as the prostitutes in the world, the shady people in the world. Third, I think Jesus is exposing, which is, of course, intimately connected to how he sees himself, how he sees the woman. I think he's exposing how he sees Jesus. Of course, all these views connected that he's doing pretty well. He's got a level of righteousness. He was seen as the most righteous within his community of faith. Perhaps this is why his treatment of Jesus is in such stark contrast to the lavished love and devotion of this woman that he didn't even offer the, the normal, the, the general courtesies of the culture, the, the, the washing of the feet, the anointing of the head, the holy kiss. He just bypasses that because he really doesn't know or believe that Jesus is the answer to our great need of unrighteousness, of brokenness and sin. I wonder... If we had Jesus over in our living room, would our devotion look more like the woman or more like Simon? This woman somewhere, and I love, I love that we don't know the background story of this woman. We don't know where she figured it out. But somewhere in the recent past, she had come to grips with her own brokenness and her desperate need of God. And then she found out that Jesus was the messenger of God's love, that through Jesus, God doesn't despise people that are shady and broken and far from the kingdom, but Jesus is the messenger to bring this lavish grace and mercy of the Father to her, that even her, even someone like her, the Father loves and is drawing, and she figures this out. Someone tells her, and so she doesn't care about the customs. She breaks in, and she takes what is probably probably the most valuable thing in her life, the tool of the trade, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, not caring about the awkward moment, not caring about her hair being down, not caring about what Simon thinks or the other people thinks. She just does it. But not Simon. Not Simon. Friends, I think that this 
this story leads us to ask a number of questions of ourselves and our vision and how we see others, especially the shady folks, how we see ourselves and ultimately our need for Jesus and how we see Jesus himself. So let's ask a few questions of ourselves. First question is this. Do we recognize our own poverty of spirit? Do you recognize your dramatic need for Christ? Or are we too much like Simon in the story and not enough like the woman? Many of us relate to Simon because there is this... There's this truth contained in the gospel that I think not many of us, we get it sometimes from time to time, but we don't embrace it. We don't hold on to it. We don't carry with us. And I think we miss or forget or neglect this truth. And this truth has to do with righteousness, this idea of righteousness that's contained in the center of the story. And we have to get, if we're really gonna understand the full impact and the significance of this story. And this, this idea of righteousness, our righteousness and others' righteousness is crucial to how we see ourselves. Near the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was being criticized and he said this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do we have that, Luke 5? There it is. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we can read that and go, huh, I thought Jesus came for everybody. I thought he had come to this earth to call everybody to the Father, but apparently no, he's only come to call a few, right? That's kind of disappointing. I thought Jesus was for everybody. I have come not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So has Jesus not come for everyone? You say he come for everyone, but it says he hasn't come for the righteous. I don't get it. What's what? Oh, that's kind of surprising. I think when Jesus said that, he said that with a smirk. I can't prove that biblically. But he said, because it was the Pharisees that were criticizing, he said, oh, I haven't come for the righteous. Because <laughs> what the Pharisees think. Oh, yes. Got it, yeah. They didn't know the poverty of their soul. In fact, they should have. All through Scripture, this truth of none is 
righteous, not even one. If you compare yourself, yes, to the shady people of this world, sure, you can feel good about your righteousness, but that's not who we compare to. Listen to Psalm 143, two. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you, God and Father. Isaiah 53, six. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That level of rebellion and selfishness. We put ourselves on the throne. We center our lives, our world on ourselves. That's who we are. Romans 3, 9. We all are under sin. Sin is at work in all of our lives. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus, Luke 18, 9. Someone says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God, it doesn't matter who you are or what you have done or what you have accomplished before a holy and righteous God, we all fall short. We all miss the mark. Have you ever tried to live one day not being selfish? Have you ever tried to live one day without those festering small things, those petty jealousies, those little lusts? That, that little anger that is stirred, that level of doubt, all of those things. As we walk, yes, and seek to be more like Jesus, he does give us victories over the sin. Praise God, hallelujah. But the old Adam and Eve cling, and we wrestle with that. By the way, friends, It doesn't matter if you owe 500 denarii or 50. You still owe or somewhere in between. I'd even be willing to grant Simon and that some of you here only owe 50. You still owe and you can't pay it back. The money lender is the father. You still owe. Oh, and you should be living in response, understanding yourself as someone who owes even 50. I'm good enough for that. Even 50 denarii, even that. Look at your neighbor and say, you owe 50, at least 50, probably more, more so, right? Some of you are in the hundreds, right? Some of that, right? Doesn't matter though, right? We all owe. All before God. And if we don't understand that, then we're always going to be in the shoes of Simon. As we look at ourselves. In another place, Jesus was talking about righteousness. This was a big subject in his day for the religious leaders. Important to the Pharisees and the disciples. Pharisees saw themselves as the most righteous. They were earning their way to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I bet when the disciples said that, that heard that, they were like, what? 
my God, they do everything right. Jesus, the bar is way too high. Who thinks Jesus said that with a smirk? What did Jesus know? You can't get there on your own. You need, doesn't matter, 50 or 500, you need Jesus. You need mercy and grace that cannot be earned, that cannot be achieved, not with your own uh, doing. You receive it from a loving Father. And friends, if you're not worshiping the Lord in your heart and soul and in your life, you've not understood that you are poor in spirit. Famous pastor, one of my favorite, Pastor Timothy Keller, in one of his book, he was talking about how many people today resist Jesus' teaching that we are poor in spirit. And he writes this, on the contrary, you believe that God owes you something. He ought to answer your prayers and to bless you for the many good things you've done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term, by inference, we can say that you are not poor in spirit, but middle class in spirit. Look at your neighbor and ask, are you a middle class spirit? Did you walk in this morning as a middle class spirit? You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work, You may believe that the success and the resources you have are primarily due to your own industry and energy. Friends, when we are there, we are far from the kingdom of God. Far from living it right. Do you see yourself as poor in spirit? Doesn't matter, 50, 500, somewhere in between. Second question, I think if we allow ourselves to enter the story through the woman, another important question can be, what's your alabaster jar? What's your alabaster jar? Think of the significance of the alabaster jar that for the woman. It represented her willingness to let go of her old life, her broken life, the way that she survived and made a living, that she was willing to sacrifice really everything to seek him. As she poured that out on the, pot, uh, on, on the feet of Jesus, she was probably pouring out her life savings. Everything she had, not just a tool of the trade, but what she had used, what she had collected, what she had used, she was pouring out, she was laying at the feet of Jesus, her brokenness, her pain, her life, the things that paid the bills, the things that brought her security, all those things she just poured out. That that brokenness, she just left it there. She doesn't hold anything back. 
What are you holding back? What are you keeping? What, what are you unwilling to release and place at the feet of Jesus? Is there something that you're holding on that, that you know is part of your own old life that, that Jesus continues to, to speak to you about maybe that's an idol? Maybe that is a, a, a brokenness, a way of sin that you've had for years and years and you're doing some things following the Lord. Maybe it's fears. Maybe it's insecurities. Maybe it's a person that you're holding on and that person is your alabaster jar and you've got that person and you won't let that person go even though you know that person is not from Jesus. Jonah, from the belly of the whale, said this, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. When we hold on to those alabaster jars, when we hold on to those things, those persons, those insecurities, those fears, that sin, we're turning to those things or people away from the love and mercy and forgiveness and restoration that the Father wants to pour out into your life. We live away, but Jonah says, I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What's your alabaster jar this morning? We get to confess it. You know why? Because Jesus forgives it. He doesn't want you to give the alabaster jar and then condemn and shame and drive you away. What does he want to do? He wants to draw you close and give you new life. I was interviewing for a position as a, a church planter. It was a church plant that I won't say the state. It was within our denomination. And this planter was a gifted guy. He had provided momentum and vision and gifts and calling. And he was, this was a growing new church uh, right next to a university. And it turns out he had a, he had an alabaster jar. He didn't know that he had a huge problem. And he was driving to a major city and he was eliciting prostitutes. And it finally came out because he got caught in a sting. And it devastated the staff, it devastated the church. And it was just shocking. Good friends I had developed that were part of the team and they were just didn't know what to do and how to do that. I thought, boy, if there's some moment where I, I lost track of that story, I know the church eventually closed, and I pray that that pastor has been uh, really led through some deep work of confession and restoration and healing. I thought, what if 
What if he would have taken that alabaster jar and just said, I'm giving you everything, Jesus, and I'm willing to just lay it out and trust you with how you will direct my life from this point forward. I think the story of his life, the story of that moment, the story of the church would have been far different. Some of us, rather than taking the alabaster jar and pouring it at the feet of Jesus, we still have it. We're still holding on to it. We're still keeping it because we don't want anyone to know. What's your alabaster jar? And then finally, this question. Uh, Matthew 5.10, you go to that next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we do that, we're not going to be able to hide our alabaster jars for long. Because we're going to hunger and thirst for more of the king, more of his righteousness, more of his goodness in our lives. And the final question, how do you see others that are struggling with sin and their own brokenness? I think this story and the parable that is many of our favorites of the prodigal son go hand in hand. This sinful woman is the prodigal son. Simon the Pharisee is the older brother. And the father is the money lender. And sees the wayward son or this woman a long way off. And through confession the father throws this elaborate party and celebrate. His son who was lost has been brought home. Jesus celebrating this woman that was lost is now coming and embracing new life and new salvation. And yet Simon, the older brother, he has a few choice words. We're told the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But when this, and then the older brother says, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. He won't join the party. He won't join the festivities. What was the older brother's problem? He didn't see himself as the 50. He didn't see himself as needing the grace and mercy. He was okay. He was a middle class spirit, wasn't he? And the father says, no, we had to celebrate. I'll leave you with this uh, story in terms of our view of others. It's from a book, I would recommend The Gospel According to Jesus by Chris Say. He's a pastor and he shares the story about the shady characters in his life. He says, growing up, we didn't have a lot of money, so we used to get outfield deck seats, cheap seats, 
to see the baseball games at the Astrodome. Houston fan. Most of the people buying the cheap seats did so to save money for beer. After the first few innings, they were drunk, and by the time the seventh inning stretch rolled around, there were beer mixed with peanut shells on the floor, spilled beer down on my back, brawls breaking out over here and there. As a kid, I learned a lot of, a lot of people that were sitting with the bad people. I, I learned a lot about the bad people, the drunk people. Could there be a more unchristian or unbiblical statement? By the time we noticed someone drinking a second beer, we started to pull away from them, kind of slide away, right? You've done that before. There was one occasion, a drunk fam named Batty Bob. He was a self-proclaimed Houston Astros mascot. He came to all the games wearing a rainbow wig, and he'd lead the slurred cheers in the stands. I remember one time my dad went out to sit and talk with Batty Bob. He spent the whole game with Bob, then walked him to the parking lot to bring him home with us. I was more than confused because this guy was one of the bad people. When we got home, my dad came to me and explained how God loved Batty Bob. I remember thinking, really, Batty Bob? He has a rainbow-colored wig. And he stayed with us for a few days to get back on his feet. This is when I started to realize that God did not despise these people, but he dearly loved them. That God did not despise the prostitute, but dearly loves them. God does not despise the wayward family member, the people that are broken by sin and living not lives that are anywhere close to righteousness. He does not despise you and I. He only despises the pride that we carry. He's only waiting for us to get it that whether we're 50 or 500 We desperately need Jesus. He's waiting for our love to flow from our lives in worship and adoration to him and care for him and love for others in not pulling away from others but moving close. Would you pray with me? I'd like to just give you this moment there's some of you that want to give the alabaster jar up this morning whatever you're carrying those of you who are prayer members would you just come on forward now and you can stay at your seat that's fine you can just give that to in prayer to the Lord you can come forward and be prayed for 
you can kneel down somewhere and respond in worship. Father, would you help us to be less like Simon and more like the sinful woman? Not in her sin, but in her love and devotion for you. Lord, would you help us not to carry a middle-class spirit? Would you help us to recognize our desperate need for you? Lord, some of us have alabaster jars that we want to give to you this morning. Would you enable us to lay those at your feet? give it to you.